0: רגע, לפני שמתחילים. אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציות הפודקסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפליץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח, הפודקאסט של
1: דוקטור
0: יוזביץ'. Hi guys, if you think you know how to learn, think again, because my guest today devoted their life to this very question. What is the best way to learn anything? Let me say it again. What is the best way to learn anything Want to know the secrets? Stay with us. Hi, and welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Roy Jozevich. And in this channel, I host and speak with the most prestigious, with the most important scholars from all around the world to discuss science, politics, religion, artificial intelligence, and the science of learning. And today, I'm more than privileged to speak with the Bjorks. (laughs) I have today two of the most important scholars in the field of learning, memory, and forgetting. They are Professor Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. And yes, they are a couple, they are married. They run the Learning and Forgetting Lab in the UCLA, and they won so many prizes that it will be impossible to mention. So let me just say they are the best. And if it's not enough, in my second book, Enlightenment version 2.0, I devoted an entire chapter to the most important theory of all desirable difficulties. So Bob and Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. How are you today? We're doing well
1: and uh, um, we're looking forward to the opportunity to uh, talk about the topics that um interest you and I think interest your audience, interest anybody who's interested in schooling and learning and their own learning, their kids' learning. And,
0: and be and so human on. because learning is part of what makes us human. So yes. if you're interested in being human, so <laughs> you, should, you should be interested in this talk. Now, as I mentioned before, we will start with the hard questions and move on to the harder one, okay? Yep. Okay, so I start with you, Rob. At a <clears throat> According to Wikipedia, you have a BA in math. Now, I would say that many scholars today in the field of education just don't understand what it takes to be successful in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And many of the theories, many of the theories just lack the understanding that some aspects, some uh, procedure of learning are profoundly different in humanities and in the science. So I want to start a, would you agree with my observation? And B, how do you think that your math background helped you in your career as a psychologist?
1: Well, I guess I can start. Uh, I mean, we, we think the distinction, for example, between what we call um, storage strength, retrieval strength, or decades ago, um, researchers referred to by different names, but the difference between, um, some, whether something's accessible right now, some knowledge you need in the present of, of, uh, the various cues that are available, uh, which we refer to retrieval strength, it's had different names, uh, the distinction between that and what we tend to call storage strength, namely how sort of, um, interrelated what it is you're trying to recall, you're trying to learn, with everything else that's uh, that you might know or might have been exposed to. Uh, so that distinction between retrieval strength, what's accessible right now in the presence of the, the cues that are available, uh, recency plays a big role how recently you've gone over it, and storage strength is, is sort of fundamental. And also, I'm kind of bypassing your question. we will probably get back to it eventually. Yes, but,
0: yes. I just wanted um, to ask you how does it relate I'm to? Like the a, I'm being
1: like a politician at the moment. <laughs> I'm I'm going around, but I must tell you, a you basic thing, a basic old enough,
0: is, you can say whatever you want.
1: That's right. That's right. We just uh, <laughs> that's a that's a privilege. I guess it comes with age. But but I mean, students, all of us can be so fooled by what we call retrieval strength. We can recall something now because of recency, we've just been over it, because there's cues in the present situation that narrow down the alternatives. But what we're often interested in is with students or ourselves is the durability of this. Will you be able to recall this information at a later time? Or if the situation changes where this what what you've learned is now relevant in a new context, will you be able to access it? And that depends on what we've called a storage strength. And uh, I guess a basic thing before getting back to your more specific question is uh, we're all vulnerable to getting sort of fooled by retrieval strength. A student can think they're prepared for an exam just due to uh, the familiarity they feel when they look at the book again, or um, but the conditions that will maximize learning in the most fundamental sense, the storage strength sense, are often very different than the conditions that will maximize retrieval strength. And I don't know if you wanna add something to that, Elizabeth?
2: Well, yeah, I would just wanna say about being fooled it's very hard to tell when you're actually learning versus um, when you're doing things that feel like you're learning, but really all they're doing is, uh, is maintaining your performance. And as soon as, so for example, uh, well, a classic sort of example is you, you look up, in the old days, you used to look up a telephone number in the directory, and now you're walking over to your phone to call it, and while you're doing that, you're saying 475-1943, 475 until you can pick up the phone and dial. You can tell this was a while ago, but it would still work with your your iPhone. You sometimes have to, after you found the number, you have to switch to another screen and you wanna make sure you don't lose that number out of your memory before you get to the screen where you're gonna punch it in. So uh, that, Seems like you're learning when you're doing that kind of rapid, sometimes we even refer to it as telephone rehearsal. But actually that does not lead to any sort of permanent uh, storage of that information that you can retrieve later. And this, this we get fooled by this a lot. It's very hard for students to, um, know when they're doing certain kinds of study strategies is this one in which I'm actually learning or not. And worse yet, the ones that kind of maintain your performance and seem to where you seem most like you're being like you're learning like math studying, for example. Really, they're not Uh, at all building up storage strength. So, and then, you know, maybe if you get tested on them immediately after you've looked at them and rehearsed them over and over again, uh, they'll be okay. But if there's any delay in time or interruption where you have to do something else and come back to it, it's not gonna be accessible to you or not nearly as accessible to you as you thought it was. So those are the two things we have to sort of constantly um, keep reminding people. It's very hard. Our intuitions are not a good guide to whether you're actually learning or not. And what what are good guides to whether you're learning is whether you're doing (laughs) the kinds of strategies that we advocate called desirable difficulties.
0: Okay, but just just a second, because you gave me a wonderful answer for questions that I didn't ask. So That's let me right. activate yeah. my Israeli mode and be a little bit more wood. When I spoke with Barbara Oakley, okay, let me put it on the table because I think it is profoundly important. When I spoke with Barbara Oakley, I told her, listen, the entire MOOC revelation, I can say Coursera, was founded by Daphne Kohler and Andrew Nigg, two computer science professors from Stanford University, Udacity, uh, Sebastian and EdX, you know, it's, it seems like the entire educational revolution in the last 10 years was carried out by people from the STEM. And I would say that this is not by chance. There is a profound misunderstood or misunderstanding in the humanities and especially in the educational faculties about what it takes to become a better stem math engineering computer science student and when in those uh, faculties they come up with theories they can't back it up with data because again they don't understand i would say again that there is a profound difference between learning in the humanities and learning in the math and i come back to you Bob, since you master two of them would you agree or say no if you're learning you learn it so you can learn how to shoot basketball and you can learn the humanities and you can learn calculus so again i
1: think one thing we've been surprised about probably is um just how general uh these principles are whether you whether you're applying in a domain of motor skills whether they're in uh, mathematics, learning mathematics, whether they're in the physical sciences. And for that matter, uh, in humanities, there's still all of the dynamics that have to do with um, uh, connections, interconnections between things, between the, the power. I mean, so for example, we've tried to emphasize that recalling information in any domain does much more than just reveal that it's in your memory. When you recall it, a whole bunch of important things happen. It becomes more recallable in the future. Things in competition with it become uh, less recallable, a very unique thing about human learning and memory. And also, we, be, we potentiate subsequent learning of information after we've made an attempt to recall something. So it's really uh, in fact, uh, a thing somewhat surprising right now, researchers in, in uh, uh, education are looking at the pre-testing that is your, your students, you're coming to a lecture and the instructor Ask you questions on the material that's about to be covered. And the, the surprising thing is, you're, you're no better than close to chance as a student to answer those questions, the material hasn't been presented, but that pre-testing seems to uh, increase the, then the efficiency. You, you activate what relevant knowledge you do have, apparently, even though you can't come up with a specific right answer, and that lets you encode more effectively the the material when it is presented. So there's been a lot of what are called broadly test effects, the benefits of retrieval practice, uh, and the benefits of now pretesting.
2: And this uh, this relates to um, this is probably something you've heard. People are concerned that the invention of the internet and Google makes all this information immediately available to us and uh, what's happening to our memories our memories getting bad because we can google for anything that we all the things that we used to know everybody's phone numbers and whatnot we don't bother to learn them anymore Uh, but we have some grad students who are showing just what Bob was talking about that if you're trying to think of something and you're you sort of think, maybe I knew that once or, or sounds kind of familiar. Rather than just Googling it and finding the answer, you should try to, try to search your own memory first. Now, maybe you won't find the specific item that you're looking for or the specific answer that you're looking for. But what you will activate is information related to that. And so, then when you do get the opportunity to use Google and find out the correct answer, you learn it better. And not only do you learn it, and when I say better, I mean in a way that you can retrieve it and hold on to it later. Um, you not only um, uh, learn that new information better but you have made the other information that you tried to think about that was related, you made that stronger. So you're exercising your memory and increasing um, increasing these connections between things that you knew and new information that you're learning about. Uh, if you just, you know, this is just a, a device that will, it will make us our use of Google not hurt us, but actually help us uh, to create a more connected, a more um, elaborate kind of encoding of that information then it okay
0: Now for those in my audience who are unfamiliar and and this is very unfortunate for those who are unfamiliar with the concept of desirable difficulties what Elizabeth is trying to say is that when you try to pop or to remember something deep in your memory and you have this and this is difficulties. it feels uncomfortable but the the entire theory says yes. It is difficulties, but it's desirable. When you perform this uncomfortable task, uh, the thing, the item, once you can retrieve it to your memory, and even if you can't retrieve it, the next time you will try, it will be much easier. So this is a concept of yeah. di- a difficulty, which is desirable. Now, yeah. uh, with your permission, I think that in order to start explaining your theory and go inside, we need to define one very important term, which is called metacognition, okay? Now, metacognition, I will, I will give my lame, unprofessional definition, is like thinking about thinking, but you probably can do it much better than me.
1: No, it's funny. It's an awkward term, people find it, but really... It, it subsumes uh, people's belief about how they learn and and more specific things yeah, like, I think, I think uh, you know, when a student's, pre- we often emphasize the students, when they're preparing for exam, they're exercising these metacognitive processes. They are making judgments about whether this is something they knew well enough that they can stop studying it. That this other thing, they should spend their time on. So there's there's a whole series of judgments that we make about whether we know something and then also part of metacognition is we have beliefs about how we should learn.
0: Okay, you know, so let me just rephrase about, yeah. it with your permission, I'm sorry. So metacognition sure. is two things. One is our beliefs about how should we learn? What is the best yes. way to learn? This is our beliefs and two is our toolbox that that gives us the impression, the feeling that something that we have learned, we have learned enough and we can move on to yes. the next thing. And what we know uh, from your research is this is crap. <laughs> <Okay>. So the, <laughs> the, the intuitive feeling and the belief system regarding how, how should we learn and when we have learned enough are not yep. worth trusting. E. we shouldn't trust them, OK? I, <laughs>
1: That's right. No, good. Good. I mean, even something as simple as when, if you're a student preparing for an exam or something like that, when you reread your notes or a chapter that you've done before, that you've read before, to try to make some judgment about whether this is material you need to study anymore. Um, and, Low-level processes will increase your fluency of reading. It will there will be a sense of familiarity and so on, that can be very misleading. That as you look back over your notes or some part of a chapter, and as you read it, you will have a sense of fluency.
0: And but this that is a, is a, a poor measure.
1: You. It's a poor measure of whether you will be able at a later time to generate that relevant information on your own in response to a question.
0: No, but it's
2: satisfying. I mean, as Bob said, it creates this illusion of comprehension. And I think it's why students report their most Mm -hmm. favorite and also the study strategy they engage in the most is to just read a chapter over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And because then they're getting these sort of low level inputs that, oh, this is familiar, I know this. I understand it. I've got it. I'm going to remember this. But uh, you know, it's true. It truly is an illusion of understanding or comprehension. Or- I
0: think that in my lecture, when I give lectures about this subject, the most uh, surprising thing is the distinction between recognition and recollection, because yes. the human mind was evolutionary designed to recognize things. Okay. I can see you, and I can see you after 20 years. I say, Hey, I recognize it's Bob. He owes me money. Right. Okay. But the recollection is to get your picture, your mental um, picture out of my memory without an external clue. And this is extremely hard. And this is what we are. Ex- uh, 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 supposed to do on external tests, okay? Because I won't see you in the test. I need to get you from the bottom of my mind all the way up to my consciousness. And this is extremely hard. And people more often than not confuse between recognition. Okay, I know this paragraph. I know this chapter. I've reread it and reread. And I even mark it with a yellow marker. But when they need to take it out of memory without the aid of the external cue it's almost impossible
1: that that's a very good that's that's a very good summary i mean we sometimes emphasize you know what's funny is that students who who decide to get together and maybe have copies of old exams or something and they take like turns trying to you know like you like you and i are working together i ask you a question you try to answer it then i add anything i think that process is exercising all the important things that we talk about in terms of the, simply trying to generate an appropriate question is an important thing trying to answer collecting whereas if i just look over my notes again or uh, you know it or or copy something down i mean a court stenographer can get every word and a you know whole Session in courts, copy everything down, and they will, this has actually been shown, they will know nothing about what this is about afterwards. That transcription mode does not lead to learning. So uh, you need to exercise these, what what we've sometimes said to summarize some research is students need to learn to output more and input less. Yes, this is one way or another practice the retrieval process. And uh, don't spend so much time uh, just exposing yourself. We, we don't, you know, we've emphasized that we don't work like any sort of tape recorder or other recording device. Uh, in, in almost every, I once taught a seminar where that was the structure, the whole sort of seminar is all the ways we differ from any normal recording
0: device yes I think Elizabeth Loftus you know who is who's studying memory from a very different aspect she said yes we are not a recording device we invent the memories we erase the memories we manipulate the memories as a magician I know that many people when they recall the experience of the magic they just recall the experience and they just can't trace back and figure out what actually has happened now let me give you my theory and I would like to know uh, what you think about it you know in Israel when we have tests in the university we have two chances for the students to take tests there is like the first chance and if they fail they have another chance and more often than not after the first test after the first test and the lecturer uh, solve the first test in front of the class and many students who didn't show up for the first test come to see you know this workout thing and they say wow this was a very easy test this was a very easy test Mm -hmm. why 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 did they miss it and on the second chance they often fail because it's it's very different when you have the lecturer who is guiding you through the processes through the procedure who knows where should you go left and where should you go right and it feels like this is a very easy test but when you don't have the lecturer with you it's very hard to solve the test would you agree about this uh, thing
1: no that, that that's a great summary i don't have to add much to that i mean but but also Instructors inadvertently do other things that mislead students. So, for example, in math and physics, those kind of courses, uh, you know, there's always problem assignments. But what, the, by far, the most typical thing is that three or four or five problems in a row all involve a certain kind of algorithm. That is, you know, at a low level, they might all be testing a student's ability to uh, use the Pythagorean theorem.
0: Yes, and this is where we go to the
1: interleaving theory. Yeah, and so what, what happens is that's a kind of crutch that each, that this problem is going to involve the same um, sort of machinery to solve it as the other. And, and so um, Douglas Rohr, who teaches at the University of South Florida, has done this very important work in actual Lauren, it's algebra, I believe, right? Algebra, yeah. I yeah. Think, yeah. In classrooms, and a year-long project, and and shown just very large positive effects that come from interleaving and from not uh, giving cues. That you know, we're, part of the challenge is to know what does apply to this problem, not to be given that and then asked to use
2: okay. it. I wanna to just uh, touch back to your comment about the professor, the student's uh, uh, misperception that, oh, this is an easy task. And then when they're ta- on their own taking a similar task without the instructor guiding them through it, it all of a sudden, wow, this is, why is this so hard? <laughs> uh, and uh, one thing I learned as a teacher was when I was giving students practice tests, you know, like old exams and so forth to look at. I think it's a very helpful way for them to learn. Um, And not only to, and and also to get a feeling for, what are the things that you feel or this instructor feels are important? What are the things that they tend to ask about? Uh, And, but, I always make them, I learned to make them take the practice test without the answers. Because I said, if I give you one with the answers on it, all you'll do is say, oh, yeah, I knew that. That's the one I would have picked. Or, you know, if it's a multiple choice, that's the answer
0: I would have picked. This is great. This is what I tell my students all the time, there is a whole of difference between looking at the answers and saying, hey, I understand, and going through this process by yourself. Let me just say that there is a very famous dialogue from Plato, Meno, and in this dialogue, Socrates tried to explain the Pythagorean theorem to the slave just by asking questions. And, And then the premise of the dialogue that he had it all inside him. Now, the British philosopher Gilbert Weil once wrote a paper about what if at the very beginning of the dialogue, Socrates just forget how to prove Pythagorean theorem. How would this uh, conversation look like if he doesn't know in advance how should he take the course? And this is an hilarious article because We we
1: we should get that I guess. If you
0: don't know this is so funny because Gilbert Weil was touching Socrates was bluffing. If you don't know in advance where should you go, you don't go there in such an easy pace. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, Elizabeth, let me ask you something about uh, interliving. Okay? Because I think that interliving is like... It's very counterintuitive. First, let me just say interliving is very counterintuitive. Now, your example right now is... Reasonable, okay. Let's say that I see like a worksheet named uh, Pyth- Pythagorean Theorem. Okay, so I have all these questions on the page. I apply one very simple rule about Pythagora. I need to do it. How should you? How do you pronounce Pythagorean Theorem?
2: That's pretty, You're pretty Pythagor- close, Pythagorean.
0: Pythagoras Pythagor- Pythagor- was
2: the guy's name. Yeah,
0: Pythagoras, Pythagor- okay. But if I don't know in advance how should, uh, in, in what tool should I use, it's much harder. But yeah. uh, I think that uh, the most common or the most famous example regarding interliving is about, you know, painting styles, Okay. This is what you gave, you know, like painting style. Let's say that I give you like, a, I give you like 10, 10 images of uh, Edward Manet, and then I give you ten pictures of Picasso, and then I give you ten pictures of, of Van Gogh, and then I say, okay, try to learn the painting style of the painter. And when you interleave those painting, people people report that the learning is much harder. People report using the metacognition, Mm -hmm. which is crap, that they learned much worse, but people perform much better. So could you explain me, and again, this is very counterintuitive, why if I show you an interleaved bunch of photos, it is better than I just show you, okay, this is Picasso, this is Picasso, this is Picasso, okay? Try to get the gist out of it. Okay, I know I believe your studies, I believe your results, but could you please give me something to hold on?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I should clarify for your audience that um, what you're talking about is what what kind of system will increase your ability later when you see a new painting to say who painted it. Yes. You know, you've studied this is a painting you haven't seen before. So... What's important is whether you've learned the style. Yes, it's not a memory recognize. test, it's a
0: truly like, understanding test. Yes, that
1: and that's very, it's a very important um, type of learning. I mean, the painting's a good example. But, but for example, uh, physicians who have to look at x-rays and diagnose whether there's a malignancy, they haven't seen this x-ray. This is, this is new, this is a new patient. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, what happens if, I mean, I don't know that we ever did any experiment that gets cited so much, it's online so much, is uh, when you see several paintings by one artist in a row, you have this strong sense, ah, I get this, I get this I'm getting it, this style. Yes, I can, I yes, yes. I feel like I'm getting it. Well. Yeah. And, and then you change another one. Oh, I got this guy, all the pastels, this and that. And by, by contrast, when you interleave those same paintings at a task, people have this sense of, oh, you know, like they're almost Tom jars. It's much yeah.
0: harder to remember what was two paintings ago. So, yeah. how does it possible? How? Could you just give me an explanation, a, a plausible <laughs> well, explanation?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, what it appears um, our original work on this has triggered a huge amount of other work is what interleaving does is to help you notice um, key differences among the painters rather than what's rather than similar, because you may notice oh. from seeing several paintings by one artist in a row, you may extract something about the use of pastels or whatever, that may not be diagnostic. When, you, when I'm later showing you paintings, that may not help you distinguish between some that painter and someone else who uses a lot of pastels. But when they're interleaved, I mean, the reason this research got so much attention-
0: This is a nice That
1: the result is unintuitive to most of us, but also we happened after the final test where they had to say what artist had painted each of a series of brand new paintings. We just kind of all just threw in this question at the end, what helped you learn better, having them interleaved or blocked? And what was just so amazing is the participants, with uh, tended to learn substantially better over and over in different experiments from interleaving. But even after they perform better on this task of categorizing new paintings or or new butterflies or now it's been all sorts of new birds, uh, when they're asked what helped you learn better, they still say
0: blocking. And this is part of what we said about metacognition. Now, your, what you, this is the first time that I hear a plausible explanation. So that interleaving emphasizes the difference yes. between different painting styles and right. not the similar. Yes. And And the different might be more helpful when I want to distinguish between this painting style and this painting style.
1: Yes, and now when there's a new one, You you've had to extract what um, distinguishes this painter from another. I mean, it's you know, it typically in this experiment you see uh, whether interleaved or blocked. You see four or five paintings from a given painter. Um, This is great. You
0: know, this is the essence. The essence of this YouTube channel is I get to ask questions. It strikes me for I think for the last five years. I get to ask, you know, the scholars themselves. <laughs> this is great. This well, is why I'm here.
1: Now, it's amazing who, who all now
0: when I when when Bob talked about interleaving about different painting styles and we interleave with there is a very there is a multiplication math problem and division math problem. Right. But how should interleaving practice should be far away so it can be we're basically doing the same thing we are doing different painting style but I'm not going off one painting style and then learn French and then learn something else so for example let's say that I'm a student and I want to learn to my exams so I learn physics and I learn English and I learn uh, uh, history interliving is inside the field of Physics? Should I interleave the the sub the sub subjects, or should I interleave? You know everything, like do thirty minutes uh, acceleration and then go to history and then go to
1: yes. (laughs) Boy, you you there's we've sometimes said there's uh, you know there's about several
0: several
2: different dissertations. You know, (laughs) uh,
1: multiple doctoral dissertations waiting to be done to answer. Uh, so, um, even something what we've sometimes referred to as the chunk size. I mean, we know that it's not optimal for a student to do what they think is optimal. Namely, if they got a couple exams coming up, they think I'll spend all of this block of time working on this, this one course and all in the other, we know that's not optimal, but how often you should go back and forth and even something as basic as, you know, if
0: and I'll should you me.
1: interleave, is it is it this is so crucial to, to do, we almost wish we had a whole other career ahead of us. <laughs> should you interleave the things that are potentially confusable? So if there if there's things in physics oh. and mathematics <coughs> that okay. people tend to <coughs> excuse me, get confused about. Should those be interleaved? You better say something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
2: these are all uh, like, well, one is is what should the chunk size be? You know, like if I'm, <coughs> if I'm gonna be interleaving different topics, how much time should I spend on topic A before I switch to topic B and then C and then back to A and so forth? Um, we don't know the answer to that question and it probably depends on the type of material. Uh, and another thing is what should the relation? what you were getting at, what should the relationship be, be between these t- these bodies of material that you're looking at?
0: But I think that 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 I got an answer. So, so if we should interleave between confusable subjects, so I should interleave math and physics, I, right. should, I should interleave in anatomy, I should leave, you know, the cardio and the vascular, but interleave mm-hmm. between physics and history doesn't help you much. well that's we don't know
2: we We think uh, think they probably should be related for it to work we think
1: yeah that that it will help you it'll be a desirable difficulty to to try to sort out those possible confusions by interleaving them and uh but i mean it's uh it, it it really is in some ways the most uh, you know we've known about spacing effects for a long time. I mean it's one of the most robust things. Ever since Ebbinghaus. Yes, Ebbing. <laughs> I mean, if you want to start from the beginning, it was there and.
0: Anyway, yeah. one of my next question is related <clears> to Ebbinghaus and the spacing effect. Yeah, I can't so, prepare. Well, I told you.
1: Good timing. Yeah, but I mean, so we've known about the spacing effect, but but teachers, this is for any teachers that might be walk, watching. There have often been a reaction when we talk about the just the power of spacing the repetitions of of when you cover certain material. Um, You know, there's been a reaction like, well, I can't, uh, you know, I've got this material to cover. I, I can't have the students take the rest of the class doing some unrelated activity and whatever and come back. I've got to cover these topics. The important thing on that respect about interleaving, it's a way to create spacing, but in the same total time. That is, it it doesn't take you more time as a teacher to to cover material in an interleave fashion than it does block. It will probably though, and this is a crucial thing for any teachers listening out there, it will probably lower the student ratings of your teaching. To do in
2: at least
1: for a while for a while okay once
2: uh, they learn once they realize they're learning better
0: i think that our education system you know it, there is like an external uh state exams in israel like in it's called you know like <clears throat> like it's it's not like the sat it's before it's it's, it's the national uh finals yes the yeah. n- right. national finals and the ministry and the minister of education decided this week to cancel Many, I think all the humanities uh, tests, just beside beside grammar, and give like an an inter like an not an external. It's going to be an internal in school test. So our education system, I don't want to discuss, but I do want to discuss another thing regarding interliving, and I will give you, uh, I will tackle it from two different aspects. Okay, as a Jew observant Jew, we know that we need to focus on something when you learn the torah sometimes you need to concentrate and concentrate and concentrate and concentrate and just after many hours of concentrate you come up with something valuable if you don't into this world of judaism the concept of flow the concept of deep walk the concept that you need to focus and focused and you need to get everything in space and and, and in place and just focused until you produce something valuable. But this concept is in some way against the concept of interleaving where I study for one hour and then I interleave for something else. When I need to write an important paper, when I need to think about an important algorithm, I can't interleave. So my question is, should interliving be something for our students? And as scholars, we need to focus and focus and focus and focus until we get something valuable, or it is also something that we should apply as scholars, okay? Because again, I know and I think that you feel also that one hour plus one hour is very different from two hours straight. What's your take on that?
1: well i mean it's it's um it's kind of crucial for people to sort of realize that forgetting enhances learning i mean it's a very hard thing namely when you space you do other things before you come back to the material and you will definitely have a sense when you come back to it that that it's it's uh, some of it's sort of been forgotten or it's unfamiliar or something, but that very process of bringing it back to a state where it's familiar and fluent is very powerful. That is uh, the, same, the same sense that, um, you know, the students may even say, have a feeling like, oh, I, I had this before, and now I'm I'm struggling to get back to where I was. Well, the struggling to get back to where you were is going to be something that's going to enhance your ability to recall now at a at better at a longer time. So each time something spaced and you kind of bring it back or reactivate it, um, it will then remain accessible for a longer period of time so it, it probably applies to the torah and I don't it see applies that. to
0: you when you both when, when mm-hmm. you both write papers and and you both like brainstorm about you do interleaving you like okay it's it's one hour it's 60 minutes we did two pomodoros let's move on to something else okay listen i want to th- sit and think and rethink about it because I would say, again, that there is a difference between a student struggling to get this concept and the scholar trying to figure out something completely new. Elizabeth, what do you think?
2: Uh, well, I know there's sometimes we're put in a situation where we don't have the luxury of doing something like uh, spacing or interleaving or something. We have to get this job done in the next 20 minutes. Uh, but um, I think that if you're if you have the time and you, you this is a this is a body mm-hmm. material that you really want to learn, you want to have command over it, you want to be able to use it in different situations and so forth, then I think it's it's much better for you to um, uh, you know do something that will put these kind of spaces in between uh, your concentrated effort to learn that information. Now, you can also sometimes learn yourself. I'm not, after 20 minutes, no matter how interested I am in this body of work, I start thinking about other things. So, or maybe you're more of a person who can go for 40 minutes before that happens.
0: Elizabeth, you. maybe because you're a, a millennial, so you maybe. can't focus too much. Okay. Maybe you are a millennial. You but were see, born this, after 85. <laughs> just, just think how
1: many writers, uh, Asim, Isaac Asimov, Stephen King, anyone, they gradually develop um, a process where They let something sit even for even for months sometimes, so that when they come back to it, they they see some better way. That is, once it's hard to revive. We found boy, we we found this so much. We we are so much better at revising each other's writing than we are our own writing. You know, it's just there's something just about that, but lots of these biographies about super prolific writers. And they also, almost everything differs from the way that students think these great writers work. They think they they get great inspirations. And for 48 hours straight without leaving, they generate, you know, without sleeping or whatever, they generate this masterpiece or something. And really, when you look at prolific writers, they get up at 8.15. They have
0: Stephen King writes for three hours each yeah day. They,
1: they write for this time they take a walk in the countryside, they come back, they whatever, and, mm-hmm. and they're done. They, and they, they they want they want maybe five pages of new text per day. They first revise the five pages from yesterday, generate five more pages, that's it. That seems like nothing, but that creates a lot of books as weeks and time
0: goes by. Yeah. Okay, this is nice. I need to I think about it. It also
2: gives you a, a really good, I, I tell my students this too, that, you know, if they have a term paper or something, don't write your term paper the night before. Uh, you'll be tired when you're doing it. you will be things that seem clear to you as you're writing them.
0: <laughs> but like. Yes, who, but I think that... <laughs> It's an advice like don't eat junk food. It's a great advice. Just like don't eat junk food and exercise each day and go to sleep, you know, sleep seven days. You know, there is a very nice Jewish joke about guys come to the doctor and say, listen, I I feel terribly sick. So I say, okay, what is your schedule? And say, "Oh, I'm very tense. I say, okay, you should eat healthy and you should sleep eight hours a day and stop smoking stop. uh..." So the guy says, if I do all of your advices, I won't need you okay so, <laughs> okay so anyway this is a great advice yeah. but it's a it's very hard a, to do
2: very, hard.
0: very very hard to do now we don't have much time so i want to cover many other things uh, uh, bob in your great ted talk your uh, uh, mutual ted talk you mentioned yeah. the difference between learning by doing and learning by watching and you give the example of an airplane life-saving belt. You see this instructional video for 100 times, but when you need to do it for yourself, you are clueless. And you said, and I quote, one time of actually doing it would be worth more than dozens of passive observations. And you even uh, said, if you do it once, I will give you a pin that says, (laughs) follow me, I know how to do it, okay? Now, on the other hand, There is a theory or the concept of mirror neurons that when I see a person perform an activity, approximately 20% of my neurons engage in mimicking this activity or mirroring it. And many people say that this is also a valid learning mechanism. Okay. I see you, 20% of my neurons activate as if I did what you just did. So, in in a way, I'm learning. Now, this is learning by seeing, not this is learning by watching, not learning by doing. What's, what's your take on this? So, so we, about learning by doing and the concept of mirror neurons? Oh, I
1: think there's some, um, you know, uh, athletes will practice uh, a high jump or other ones like that. They will do a visualization of kind of miniaturized a practice of, of what they're going to do. And were it, were it the case on the airplane that people would actually do something like imitate, but what they're doing instead is talking to their neighbor. Plus he's, but the person like that example I gave, they are not showing you, for example, how to get the thing from under your seat. You don't even know whether it's going to be in some zippered bag or what, you know, so they're 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 just holding it up, plus they're holding it up in the right the right way, and with a plane down and smoke and people screaming. You don't know what you may not even know what's front and back of this thing, and uh, so yes, I I uh, you know you have all that time to kill in an airport. There could be some little room off there where you just go, if you, we've said, if you would do it once, go through the whole process, get the thing out from under your seat, open it up, put it on, get the breathing tube out, whatever, go over somewhere where they've got a window sized thing and do it one time would be worth more than these dozens of passive exposures we get. And that, that generalizes to a lot of other kinds of uh, circumstances as well
0: so let me say differently mirror neuron is a great thing Uh, kudos to risoletti but as a learning mechanism learning by doing is much more efficient much more
1: efficient and people um i mean you will see sometimes um we've seen this a little bit watching some of our uh gymnastics particularly women's team at ucla they will do a, a kind of miniaturized version of uh, of the exercise. So, I mean, there are there are things, but I mean, the the doing is is really very crucial. We we once once uh, I chaired a committee that was advising the U.S. Army on training, and if you go to if you go to various kinds of stations, uh, training bases you'll see soldiers lined up. One of them is shooting at a target or doing something. The rest are all lined up to take their turn. And that, that is really a waste of time, um, that you, you want people to be doing an exercise. And, and we've, we've advised um, um, a prominent soccer coach in, in England about this, about not lining his kids up
2: to watch, somebody. to watch,
1: but to have, have them uh, interleave the different activities. That is, they should be able to go and try a uh, throw in from the side or try a penalty kick or, or a certain type of pass. And uh, this hasn't been done as rigorous experimentation, but he's reporting uh, pretty amazing benefits of interleaving the practice activities.
2: Yeah. Okay. i not just improving their skill learning, but also their enthusiasm for the whole, you know, a lot of kids don't like to go to soccer practice or basketball practice. They want to play the game of soccer and they want to play the game of basketball. And this now your, your practice is much more uh, much similar to what happens in a real game or what happens. And so the students get really excited about it. He said they start coming early to practice. They want to stay longer.
0: I think that we, this is what we know from the work of Anders Ericsson regarding deliberate practice. Yes, Playing yes. the game is not as pra- is not the same as practicing. This is very different. Okay, so yeah. I have three more questions and I serve the hardest to last. Okay, so so far it was fun let's move to the hardest questions Uh, let me start you the your you mentioned over and over again the idea that learning is not equal performance okay when you think performance or, or is how you do when you study and learning is like a full committed change permanent change in your way of thinking and i want to ask a rude question with your permission and maybe maybe learning in the context of all of those psychology experiments is different than learning in the real world. Let me explain. When we had the work of Ebbinghaus, he tried to learn like meaningless words. James, William James, again, same thing. Try to learn, just try to memorize poetry or meaningless meaningless thing. When we try, you know, the scuba diving, the context-dependent memory experiment, we just, like, just memorize list of words. Maybe, as you say, that performance is unequal to learning, learning in the context of psychology experiment is unequal to real learning in the real world, and one cannot extrapolate from the other. Now, you know, this
1: was a, it's a legitimate question. And uh, I remember distinctly in my own case, a, you know, a kind of worry that- You are the not laboratory experiments me about we were doing, this question. You know, the things we were doing with para associate materials, this and that, that it wouldn't be uh, extend. But I will tell you the truth. Now, when those people have done research in law school training and athletics and whatever, the effects we saw in these highly controlled laboratory things were underestimates of the benefits. You know, when you super control paired associates and whatever else, you're you getting to control it one way, but in another time you're also constraining a situation so much there's there's not quite a, an opportunity. So some of the benefits that have been uh, You know, even things like uh, there's a a bunch of things in the schools now, but one of the most impressive is the dean of um, the Florida Law School. Remember which school? Uh, Florida Florida International. um, Got familiar with some of these results and decided they would change all, incorporate all the things we've talked about today, retrieval practice this interleaving a whole bunch of things. It made for a very different uh, law school curriculum. But after they introduced that, they were able to go from about uh, fourth among Florida law schools in the rate of passing the bars to first place several years in a row. And the crucial thing was the entering credentials of their students. Predicted about fourth place compared to the entering credentials of other Florida law schools. So, the thing that's so important about this, and if we had time, we'd tell you a couple other examples. Uh, optimizing, introducing desirable difficulties, various ways of optimizing, interleaving stuff, it more than made up the difference in the preparation that these students had. Yeah. They went. They, they had a less good preparation, but these manipulations during law school more than made up for that. That, that gets us excited because we think, um, you know, it's early disadvantage. This, this would go much earlier with young children who are in impoverished backgrounds and so on. You know, that's such a critical period. You worry, can I make up for the disadvantages they get? college is too late but um, I realize I'm sort of rattling on here but, <laughs> but the short answer is simply it's an entirely legitimate question one we worried about but now it looks like we underestimated some size of benefits of things like interleaving and so on by having sort of sterile restricted laboratory tests like paired associates and that the real world
0: these. This is a very good. This is a very good answer, which leads me to question number two out of three, and this is another hard question. Now, I'm a great fan of the ancient, and there is a quote from the uh, the British mathematician Whitehead that all Western philosophy is only footnotes to the work of Plato. Now, the ancient were masters of learning; they must have known this concept of desirable difficulties. There is a famous. There is a famous ancient Jewish quote, Lepum Tzara Agra, which basically translates to no pain, no gain, but in the context of learning.
1: Yeah. So,
0: how come when I say desirable difficulties nowadays, it's go to the biok The biok like coined this tense, the block, the Bjork invented this concept, but <laughs> this concept was known to the ancient. So, how come what happened from the ancient? to until the uh, forgetting the learning and forgetting lab at UCLA was founded how did you we should write, how did you. we uh, forget this yeah. so profoundly important concept you should uh, write write an
1: article on this yes. because it's such a good question <laughs> i mean what we've often done is show like in talks we've given you can show slides with quotes from uh, not just those philosophers, but but people like William James, uh, the end of uh, the 1800s and so on, where they're basically saying something like the principle of retrieval practice, or I mean, they they there's quotes you can give that illustrate this. So your question about if if they knew it and if it's all that time. What happened in our educational system that we don't incorporate these
0: things? And let me emphasize just a second before Elizabeth you answer, let me emphasize we know it all the way in sports. You know, no pain, no gain, you need to do, and this is hard. When you go to the gym, in if you want to, if you want to progress, there is some difficulties you must attain. So it it seems like we became spoiled in the context of the educational system. And you need to say, listen, I know what you feel, but this is, I will give you a a lollipop, yes? It is, it's a desirable, it's a sweet difficulties. Would you agree, Elizabeth?
2: Yes, and I would say, uh, I think as Bob's saying, you should should, uh, uh, write something up on this because historically, I don't know all, all of this, how to justify all of this, but somewhere in our school systems, at least here in the United States, and I think really worldwide, uh, there came people came to believe that learning should be fun. If you're not having fun, uh, then you're not doing the right thing, and it means and it, and there were a lot of implications of that. One is that well, this just isn't your thing. You're not going to be able to learn this because you're you know, it seems difficult to you. Uh, and the other was that failing is a bad thing to do. Making errors are a bad thing to do. Really, uh, we don't learn unless we make errors. They teach us what it was. You know, what was it that we were doing right, and now what is it that we need to change and adjust and do differently to succeed? And uh, so I think that those sort of feelings among instructors and principals and administrators that learning should be only fun and we should avoid, we shouldn't ever put students in a situation where they'll fail, that failing is a bad thing. No, failing is uh, one of the prime ways that we learn. And, And we should, teach students to think if it feels difficult to you just keep persisting because and think of it because it seems difficult because you're learning
0: and i needn't and your theory i wouldn't be so needed when you were high school students because no one thought in those days that learning must be fun okay you should learn that's it end of story would you agree bob
1: no that's right and uh Someone you may also want to interview in this series at some point is our colleague, uh, Jim Stigler, who's done very important work in the schools. And one of the early things he did was videotaping studies of algebra instruction, I think it was, in Japanese, United States, and German schools. And it was so instructive in... And, and uh, the achievement level is so much higher in the Japanese than the US and that was what motivated what were they doing differently. But so many things he noticed, for example, what was rewarded there was a student going up to the board and showing how they worked on this thing. It did, that was the rewarded activity, whether that led to the right answer or not to say how you did it in the US classroom uh, you know, the teacher would ask, and a kid would raise a hand. They'd start to answer, no, 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 and then they to another kid. And so there were all these kind of differences that fit very well with what we know about learning. And even something he didn't <laughs> always amazed even me. Even in Japan. In Japan, uh, his videotaping in classrooms showed that something like forty percent of United States class sessions get interrupted by a loudspeaker announcement about bring your something tomorrow. And that was like zero in the Japanese classrooms. And they couldn't understand how anybody, the instructors couldn't understand how anyone would permit, you know, they they think of the lesson as a kind of unfolding narrative where things are linked. And how could you have an announcement break up that style so some of those things there are many
0: differences between western and eastern uh, societies uh, especially with regard to uh, how they perceive learning now which leads me to no it doesn't lead me but this is the last question and and this is a personal question that that interests me you are both distinguished scholars and a married couple not only this, but you also work together intensively for several decades. And since I also work with my wife, I need some <laughs> advices. But please don't give me this usual. Don't start your work, uh, your thesis, the night before. Okay, give me some real hard, real real life advices.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's just interesting his background that our career has been long enough that we span the time early in our career. If you were a married couple, you could not both have professorial positions in the same department. And usually then if the university hires something, it was virtually always the woman who'd make some, get some adjunct position or something in another department. So, uh, and then there was a period after Due to actions of the United States government, actually, uh, you could not keep that practice up. But then you were expected as a married couple to work on very different things. That wasn't okay to work on the same topic. So Elizabeth had an early in her career, she worked on processes of perception and some infant learning, children learning, just partly to be have something different than what I was doing. And then very gradually it became um, okay to collaborate, but we've co-authored an article. I'm not sure I'll come up the number. It was almost- um, It
2: was at least 20 years. It was about 20
1: years from when we were married that we first felt like we could both be authors on an article. Uh, but now it's changed so much that now it's it can be a strategy of a university department to hire a couple who can then maybe afford to own a house if you're in a place <laughs> like los angeles so um,
0: let me let <clears> me ask you differently if the university would have allowed you to walk together from the moment you got married like not 20 years ago would it be much more difficult Because, you know, 20 years in marriage life, it's a lot of time. You learn, you know, to get to know each other, but working together after three years of marriage seems much harder.
1: Well, um, it is complex. So, so for example, when we came to UCLA, they gave us offices right next to each other. And (laughs) after a little bit of that, we said, could we please be <coughs> not right next? It's fine to have a single laboratory that we would run participants and stuff. But I mean, part of that was just that, uh, you know, Elizabeth would be working in her office, and a student looking for me comes and say, you know, they feel free to say, <coughs> Do you know where Dr. Robert Bjork is?
2: Can I give you this and you'll give it to him? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and And we we said, no, we don't want to be that. So uh, it is. And then, you know, some, some things I've gotten more credit for just because, um, <clears throat> you know, Elizabeth always took on somewhat, we tried to divide some things, but she always took on somewhat more of. The, the family things particularly any kids emergency when they were sick and so on. so um, it is i don't know there's there's more to say about it but we feel like across our career we've almost experienced every kind of stage of this
0: <coughs> okay uh, my my wife is not a faculty member but we work together on so many projects so, so my books and my youtube channel she's always with me but it's very intense you know being a full-time co-author and in, in, in edit your books which is a very delicate personal, intimate task and yep. run the house but I, I think it's a it was the effort you, when you find out
1: things uh, i'm better generating some original version of material elizabeth's a better editor so you sometimes you just accept some of those differences and uh to try to optimize things but uh i don't know if we can well
2: i think we we may have the advantage i think the kind of situation where i don't think we have a lot of advice from people is if i have a very intense and different career and bob has a very intense and different career now it's hard for us to just casually talk about you know, what we're doing or our jobs or what do you think about this? Or, you know, I've been thinking I should do this or give these people this answer. What do you think? Uh, because he will have no idea what I'm talking about. And, uh, but because now he mentioned for a long time, I went off in this other world and worked for a while. And then at that point, I don't think we were sharing ideas too much then, but, um, I think because we're both interested in the same problems, that is an advantage so that we can, uh, you know, like we said, you remember we were worrying how in the world did this happen? Well, what if it was the case that blah, 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 and then the one, And so we can, uh,
0: we are both interested in the same problems. I think that this summarizes a lot of things. Guys, yeah. thank you so much. It's been a truly privilege and honor for me speaking with you after, you know, after many years that we're reading what you do and having many questions. Finally, most of them were answered today. Most so th- of them. You didn't most say all of things. them. Yes, you say almost. Not. I, I think we still have a little disagreement about uh, uh, the profound difference between the STEM and the humanities. But we leave it to the next talk. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was. It yes. a true privilege. It was an honor speaking with you guys. Okay, and congratulations yeah. on this this series. Yes. yes. This endeavor. Endeavor. Yeah, <laughs> bye bye. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. עשנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהעורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת איתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור, את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו, ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים דברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד י Sheiel xem k kef gedol vê